So again, from 2 Samuel, listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that I should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce, that your master's grandson grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I, I love that. Uh, I loved all the all the hymns that were chosen this morning. But I love that uh, that line and that first hymn we we sang. Um, that will will you pray with all power while we try to preach the word? Um, and, and so as we we do come um, to preach his word. I guess we can go ahead and then dismiss the. I didn't know if I was supposed to do that before or after. Um, dismiss the the three or the three and three to yeah three three yes. Um, we can do that. But as we as we pray with all power that that we try to preach the word and it, it, it's weighty it's hard it, it, and and I feel the weight because I know myself um, and I look in, I look into the pews and I, and I see my family there and they know me it's hard um, we do pray let's pray as as, as we come to God's word um, that, uh, that that he will he will be there the Spirit will convince us that His word is true it's good let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the hymns that remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the forgiveness that we have in you. 
Father, we thank you for a church that, that has a pulpit that is faithful to preaching your word. And Father, we pray even now as, as, as we come to your word uh, that you would give us the spirit to, um, to hear it. That we would be convinced that it's true. That we can be convinced that you love us and you care for us. Despite the preacher, Father, may your, may your word go out. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I do want to just say um, thank you for, for, your, for your prayers and support of RUF at, at the University of Memphis. Um, this is my, I'm in my first year, uh, and I have gained the, the freshman 15 pounds. Um, and uh, I've, I eat like three lunches a day with students. It's great. But I've, I can't fit into my suits anymore. So, um, but we... But, and it's been a, it's been a joy to to to, to work on, on this campus, to figure out this campus, to to, to hear students' stories, um, and this is a story that we're about to jump into. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, this is a story that that when I think about, like when I'm when I'm sitting with a student and, and and thinking about how do I explain the gospel to this student, like this story is so clear. Um, the gospel is so clear in this story, and I think about it in this in this in this way when I'm talking to students. Um, so I'm excited. This this is a great um, story. Um, but let me start by saying this, and as, as far as um, introduction to this, I, I remember Sunday meals at my grandmother's house growing up. Um, we would go to my grandmother's house. And I remember walking into the garage through the through her through the door in the garage. And you'd walk into her kitchen, and you could smell the food. She, I mean, every Sunday, um, and we, I'd walk, you'd walk into the kitchen, and to the right was her dining room, and it sat under this 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 table sat under this grand chandelier, and she had her fine linen tablecloth on on the table, and she had these blue. Um, crystal glasses that sat around the table. It was beautiful. Her, her fine china, her freshly polished silver. She always had these chocolate little treats also um, above each plate. It, they were, it was beautiful. It was grand. It was, I just remember as a kid thinking, that is, that's a beautiful table. But then there was another table um, that, that sat just eye shot of the grand table, and it didn't sit under a chandelier. It didn't have the fine linen tablecloth. Um, you know, it, it had the Star Wars glasses you got at Hardee's back in the day, and, and it had the plastic plates, and, um, you know, bread was just in a basket, not in a nice bowl. It, it was where the kids sat, um, the kids' table, the card table. Um, and and I, I remember that card table, and, and, and I'm... I'm, I'm invoking a lot of bitterness right now as I'm thinking about this. Um, because as a kid, I remember thinking, one day, I'm going to sit at that, at that grand table. One day. Um, and sure enough, to this very day, when we have, my mother now has that table. And, it's sitting at her, her mother's table sits under her chandelier. And my mother has that lame card table. And when we have family meals at my mother's house when we go there for Christmas, there I am. At that lame car table with my kids. Like, I'm, I thought really, I, I thought when I got married that, that, 
oh, I'm an adult now, so I got, still got sent to the car table. My wife gets to go to the big table with the grown-ups. It's just really lame. Um, and now here I, here I sit. Um, I am the youngest in my family. Um, I have three older sisters, and I will always be seen, I, I, I guess, as the youngest in my family. And I, have, I know exactly where my seat is. I don't, have to, I don't have to guess anymore. My, that dream is dead to me. Like, I know where my seat is at that lame card table. You know, this is, this is the question I want you to think about this morning. Um, the question this morning is, do you know who you are, and do you know whose table you sit? Do you know who you are and whose table you sit? 2 Samuel 9 is one of the most beautiful pictures of the way the king loves lame, helpless, bitter traitors. How he loves the poor and the wretched and the weak um, and the broken, the sick and the sore. How he loves dead dogs like us. We see at times David could love in a way that pictures for us the way our Heavenly Father loves us and how, he's, how he really is for us. Uh, when I... I I think it was Dorothy who works in the church office here. She was like, send me your, your title and to your text. And, and uh, I was like, okay, a dead dog at the king's table. Her response was, that's a very interesting title. I was like, and so I responded back. I was like, if, if, if the text uses the terms dead dog, you've got to use it. And so I've taken great liberties to also use it throughout my outline. And so we're going to try to look at four points this morning. Um, and we're going to look at who this dead dog is, and then secondly, salvation for the dead dog. Thirdly, the privileges the gospel brings to dead dogs, and then lastly, how grace changes dead dogs like us. So let's start with this first point: who is who is this dead dog? First, he is an enemy, Mephibosheth. Um, his name literally means a shameful thing. And he is. He's three times, um, he's identified three times as, as being from the house of Saul. He is from the family of the guy who tried to murder David, King Saul. Um, he is also a threat to David's kingdom. As a potential future rival to the throne of David, he should have been killed. He should have been killed because when a new king took, took over, usually the king had all the heirs of the former king wiped out. One of my seminary professors, Ralph Davis, he, said, he says this in his book on this, uh, on this chapter. He says, a new king always needed to sullify his position. It was conventional, conventional political policy. Sullification by liquidation. Everyone knew it, everyone believed it, everyone practiced it, but David makes this absurd promise uh, that most sane politicians would have never made. He promises Hesed to his enemy. So when every other king would have been wiped out, especially one who's tried to kill you a few times, you know, that kind of family, David promises loving kindness to his enemy. He's an enemy, he's a threat, and he's also... He's someone who had, who had been dropped as a child. I don't know if you, you know, if, if your brothers or sisters ever were like, the reason why you're that way is because you were dropped. 
I mean, you know, which is a horrible thing. Um, but Mephibosheth really was dropped as a child. He really was. He was a cripple. He was a helpless man, lame in both feet, and he's crippled because he had to flee in terror when Saul and Jonathan were killed by the Philistines. And you read about this in 2 Samuel 4.4. 4. It says this, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. When he was five years old, the news about Saul and Jonathan came. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. He's a victim also of, of, this, of the sin of his grandfather. Uh, the fleeing, the, the fall, the permanent disability, the end of his future um, as, as royal heir, all of this happened to him while he was still too young to even understand what, is, what has happened. Mephibosheth is, is a fugitive. He's a fugitive who, who had to flee when David became king and had been in hiding ever since. Um, he was the only living heir to the great house of Saul, but nobody knew it. Nobody knew it because his life would have been in danger if that information would have been revealed. He grew up with his, his royalty, um, his royal identity suppressed. Um, he grew up with all the privileges of royalty denied him. And both of these conditions were aggravated by his lameness. And the truth is, he, he, he probably really never wanted to be found because of fear that his life might be in danger. Another thing about him, he lives in low Debar, um, which literally means a place of no pasture. Uh, it's a barren place. It's a wasteland, a place of no rest. Jonathan's son is living in a place where no crops grow. Uh, it, it's a wilderness. It's a wasteland. What a description of those who um, are outside of Christ and where they live, living in a wasteland. Isaiah fifty-seven twenty says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. Jerusalem is a place where God's people live with him. It's where he dwells. But Mephibosheth doesn't live there. He's also most likely pretty bitter toward David. He's, crippled, he's a crippled man with royal veins in his blood. And he probably heard stories about David his entire life and hated him. Mephibosheth may have thought that David is the very reason um, that he was crippled and not the king. And he probably was both bitter and terrified as he stood before David um, and gazed upon him for the very first time. He stands helpless before the man his grandfather had persecuted and tried to murder. Here's, here's the application. You know, we, we, I don't know if you can get, the, if, if, if you can see how clear, like, you, you can't help but see the vivid picture of the desperate condition of mankind before God here. Um, he's an enemy. He's a threat to the kingdom. He's a cripple. He's, a, he's helpless. He's lame. He's a hiding fugitive. He's from a barren place. He's bitter. He's without the sense to seek the king's favor. He's a dead dog. Um, 
you know, I, I was reminded not too long ago, our, 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 uh, my older son um, collects baseball cards, and we kind of get it. We got into it a couple years ago, and, um, and one of my favorite baseball players um, when I was a kid was Steve Sachs. Um, he was the he was professional baseball player, um, National League Rookie of the Year in 1982. Um, he played second base. In 1983, he suddenly lost his ability to make routine throws um, to first base. Like, if you know anything about baseball, second base is the shortest throw to first base. Um, and he lost his ability to make that throw. As his accuracy suffered, fans behind the first base dugout began wearing um, batting helmets as mock protection. Um, he committed 30 errors that season. And this is what he said. This is so, so good. He said um, he felt, because he couldn't make that throw, he felt like a prisoner. He felt like he, he, just, he, felt like he was just captured by this. Our sin make, keeps us. It keeps us from making that routine throw from second base to first base. Our sin makes our best efforts a failure. Our sin makes us outcasts. It makes us the cripple. It affects how we think. It affects how we act. It makes us objects of wrath. And it's made us prisoners. And so here's Mephibosheth. Standing before David as this helpless traitor expecting to hear the death sentence pronounced upon his head. Can you imagine what that feels like? Can you imagine what it feels like to stand before God as a helpless, exposed traitor waiting to hear the sentence of death pronounced on your head just because of who you are? Apart from Christ, we are Mephibosheth in the story. We're Mephibosheth. We are the dead dog. The gospel starts by saying that we are more wicked and manipulative than we ever dared imagine, but we also are more loved than we ever dared dream at the same time. We must have an adequate diagnosis um, of ourselves to be healed. Um, And God tells us a truth about who we are and our condition because of his great love for us. Jesus told us the bad news so we could hear the truth. Which brings me to the second point, the salvation for this dead dog. In, in verse 8, he refers to himself um, as a, a, a dead dog like me. The, the, the expression dead dog only occurs three other times in the Old Testament. And David used it um, as reference to himself in 1 Samuel twenty four fourteen when he was trying to assure Saul that he was no threat to him at all. Um, he said, you know, so here's Mephibosheth, and he bowed down, and he said, what is your, he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Basically saying, I am no threat to you. I'm no threat to you. Part of the reason that for years before I did RUF, I was a youth pastor, um, and part of the reason why I love doing youth ministry is, is because I, I dominated in all the sports we played, especially with the junior high kids. I could push them around on the basketball court. I was a pretty prolific ping pong player. Loved it. Um, but one Sunday morning, a sixth grader came into the room. Um, and I was setting up, I remember, like I, I was setting up the room, and he came into the room, and he was like, you want to play ping pong? I was like, sure, whatever, I'm about to dominate you. And he proceeded to put the worst 
beatdown on me I've ever had in my life. I, he wielded the, the ping pong paddle like, like Excalibur. Like it was, un, it, was, it, was really, it was really unbelievable. And as, 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 as students began to pile into the room and began to see this beatdown, I was sweating. I was out of breath. I mean, he was just sitting there like, just no problem at all. My best shots, he countered with better shots. I mean, he just killed it. He crushed it. I was no threat to him. And everybody around that table knew I was no threat to him. Um, I was a dead dog. Mephibosheth here recognizes that he is nothing. That he's nothing. He's no threat. He has nothing to offer the king. All he has is broken and lame, and there's no reason in the world for David the king to pay any attention to him, much less bless and honor him. Yet the Lord is the one who initiates, just as David initiates here. I love um, this quote by A.W. Pink on on this. He says this. He says, "Did, did David send a message of welcome inviting him to come to Jerusalem? Did he notify Mephibosheth that if he did his part, mercy would be accorded to him? Did he forward the cripple a pair of crutches, crutches, crutches and bid him to make use of them and hobble to Jerusalem the best he could? No, indeed. King David had him brought from low to bar. Thank God for God's bringing grace. Mephibosheth is living in low to bar, a, a place of no rest. What a picture. And remember, he cannot walk. I love it. They, they, they tell us this you know, twice, and they end with it. Hey, remember, he was lame in both feet. He cannot walk. So David has him brought to him, um, and, and he, he, he brings Mephibosheth to himself, and he loves him, and he embraces him in the covenant. God takes the initiative because of his love for another Mephibosheth is safe because of David's love for Jonathan. And you and I are only loved and secured and safe because of the sake of Christ. Loved only because Christ loved us first. Christ took the initiative. He looked at us and he had compassion on us. And he had mercy on us. And Mephibosheth is love for something done before he was even born. Before he, was, before he was even born, this promise was made. This covenant was even made. And David loves him for the sake of Jonathan and the covenant. God's love is a love for his helpless enemies. The gospel is this great surprise ending. The mercy of the king for helpless traitors. That's good news, isn't it? I think about my weekend. Like that is good news as I, when I fail as a father. When I fail to say the right thing as a husband, as a pastor, this is good news. The love of God is a, is a, is is a love for his helpless enemies. Mercy for traitors. The word translated for kindness in the NIV in verse 1 and verse 7 is this important Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is a love that is willing to commit itself by making its promise a matter of solemn record. It's like marriage vows. David is asking at the get-go of this passage, is there, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul and Saul's family? 
that I can love in a Hesed way for, the, for Jonathan's sake. He's asking, in effect, is there anyone still left in the enemy camp that I can love? Eugene Patterson says that. Peterson. There's another Eugene Patterson friend of mine, sorry. Romans 5.10 says that when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. My point is this. Mephibosheth, he's loved, he's secured, he's saved for the sake of Jonathan and this covenant made between him and David. And we are only loved, secured, and saved for the sake of Christ. And we're only loved because Christ loved us first. Which brings me to this third point. What are the, what are the privileges that, what privileges um, the gospel brings to dead dogs like us? I love this. I need to be reminded of this every day. Verse 7. He gets peace. He gets peace. Fear not, the king says to him. Fear not. David, David's don't be afraid signals to Mephibosheth that he's not about to get what he thinks he's about to get. Instead of death, he gets peace. He gets peace. He gets embraced in the safety of a covenant. He gets peace and he's called by name. I don't know. That's a privilege. He's called by name, Mephibosheth. Salvation is intimate. It's personal. He knows us in and out. He knows who we are. He knows our sin. He knows our shame. He knows our struggles. He knows our discouragements. He knows our inabilities. He knows what our weekend was like. You know, and I loved hearing my dad um, say my name. I loved it. I, I mean, I, I just, even when he was, he, he, he died a couple years ago, and even as like a 42-year-old, like, I loved hearing my dad call my name from another room. Loved it. And I loved when he hugged me. You know? I loved, he was a big burly man. And he was, and I'd feel like a little, little, just a little kid again. He would hug me. But I'm undone by the reality that my heavenly father, he knows my name. He knows my name and, and he brings me to himself. If you're his, he knows you. He knows your name. And he's for, which that means he's for you. He's pulling for you. As a parent, as a child, he loves you. He, gets, he, he also gets a place at the table, which brings in all the bitterness that I have about that card table. I love this. He gets a place at the table. He's not to grovel like a servant at the king's feet, but he gets to sit at the table like one of the king's sons. This is the gospel. The king's enemies are made to sit and eat at his table. He's also given the inheritance his father had, had lost through their, through, through their sin. Um, says this in verse 7, I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. He was made like a royal son. Verse, verse 11 says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He was getting, as one commentator says, he was getting more blessings heaped on him than his father had lost. 
So we've seen who this dead dog is. We've seen the salvation for this dead dog and the privileges the gospel brings to dead dogs. And my last point, this, kind of the so what to this whole thing, would be how does, gr- how does grace, how does the love of Christ change dead dogs like us? Well, later in 2 Samuel 16, we read um, of how David had to flee when his traitor son Absalom staged this coup against his father. Ziba goes out um, to join David in the desert with food, and David asks, where's Mephibosheth? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says that he has stayed in Jerusalem because he was hoping in all the political chaos that he would finally emerge as the king, and David believes this. But then in chapter 19, David returns after Absalom dies, and Mephibosheth tells a very different story. Mephibosheth says, actually, Ziba deceived him and left him stranded in the palace. And he went and slandered him before David. So who is David to believe? Mephibosheth sure looks like he's been in mourning mourning, uh, ever since David had left. But maybe it's all a hoax. And actually actually David doesn't take sides, but he, he blesses them both. But I think at the, the last verse in chapter 19 um, is where we see Mephibosheth, doesn't, he doesn't care about the lands, but all he cares about is, is that the king, his true love, had returned to him. Second Samuel 19.30 gives weight to seeing Mephibosheth as, as being truthful, um, one in the story. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that the Lord, now that my Lord, the king, had arrived home safely. You see, his, Mephibosheth's heart um, had been turned toward the king for better or for worse, uh, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. You see, this, you see isn't, isn't it true? Like when you think about your own life and how the Lord has pursued you and where you are, and maybe you're, you're sitting here right now and, and, and you feel like, man, there's something going on. He's, I feel pursued. Um, you know, that pursuit, that sovereign pursuit changes you. It changes you. That pursuing love changes you. And it changed him. You know, we continually need to be changed. Um, We're so like David, who can be so kind to the helpless and yet so wretched um, in how he exploits the weak just two chapters later. Um, But we also see in this story that that we see that the promises really matter to a king, to the king. He is the true promise keeper who, who enables us to keep our promises. Um, at the time Jonathan and David made their covenant promise to each other, neither one of them knew who would emerge to be the king of Israel. But the promise was big enough for whatever came. One commentator says that life under this covenant of love gives you a firm place to stand and ought to invoke a sense of security, privilege, and wonder from you. You know, when I think about those Sunday meals at my grandmother's house um, and that lame card table and being reminded of where my seat is at that table, um, you know, this... This passage reminds us who we are, 
um, and whose table we have been actually brought to. He brings it to this, to this table. Dead dogs, sinners made to sit at the table. And one of my favorite, you know, as, as I said you know, earlier, like, I, I love telling this story to students. Um, and again, one of my, if, if, uh, if, if I could have a favorite verse in Scripture, um, I constantly go here um, when I'm sitting with students and talking about, this is what God's really like. This is what he's really like for you in this story. He really, he really pursues you this way, and he really cares for you this way. Isaiah thirty eighteen says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. That's true. He's made a seat for you at his table. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your sovereign, pursuing love. Father, and how you come after broken, helpless, bitter folks like us. How you come after dead dogs like us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. We thank you for this this story that is true. We thank you for your word. It's your name we pray. Amen.